This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 12 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today is part four in our series on Maurice Hurley, where we're going to be recapping his work on movies. And then we're also going to take a look at his Star Trek stuff just one more time. We have a very special guest, Ben Robinson, who uh, is responsible for the Starship collection from Eagle Moss. And he's talked to... Hurley in the past. We played a voicemail from Ben a couple weeks ago, and he's going to give us the inside scoop on Maurice Hurley's time on Trek. But before we, we get to that, let's take a look at his movies, shall yeah. we? Yeah, Let, uh, let's, let's take a look. All right, so we didn't watch Firebrand 2015, or was it Firebird 2015? It's out of print is what it is. So it doesn't matter. All right. Um, Which is unfortunate because it looked like an interesting movie, to say the least. But we did get to watch his second and third movies, his second one being The Proposal from 2001. Uh, This was a movie about a guy who goes undercover as a cop, and he needs to... Uh, enlist another cop to play his wife undercover to try to take down these bad guys and um, uh, hijinks ensue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, they do. So we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, but uh, just to recap, uh, what are your thoughts on the proposal? It stinks. It's, it's not good. It really is not good. It is not good. It is uh, somewhat... Uh, entertaining on sort of a nostalgic level, not necessarily for the actual proposal itself, but for that type of movie, I think. Yeah. But ultimately, it doesn't work at all. No. Although Cancer Man is in it, and he's awesome. Yes, and uh, and and my little uh, acting crush uh, from Avatar and Tombstone is in it as well. Stephen Lang. Yeah. Yes. So that's cool. All right. Let's move on to his third movie, his final movie, William Shatner's Groom Lake. Yes. Um, Now, as of last week, you had only seen the first half hour of this. As I understand it, you have finished it. I did. I soldiered on and managed to uh, finish finish watching it. Yes. (laughs) And um, what? Well, what do you think about it now that you've seen it? I, I, am, am I wrong? <laughs> are you? Are you? Uh, did you? Did you pick up on on more stuff that I did? Is it? Is it not like as bad as I think it is? No, no, you're pretty. You're you're spot on. Okay. I haven't put my review up on Letterboxd yet, but uh, I can tell you that um, the depth of awful uh, with Groom Lake is actually stunning in and of itself. It's sort of shocking i watched a little bit of the the shatner interview too where he was talking about oh well you know when i was on star trek uh you know we would have trailers and we would sit down and we would have some food and we would do that type of stuff but on this we didn't have that at all we didn't have any of it and i was like well 
It kind of shows, Bill. <laughs> kind of shows. Yeah. 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 I would be interested to know. I mean, I didn't watch the whole Shatner interview, but I would be interested to know precisely how long it took them to shoot the movie. Because if it was more than three days, I'm going to be stunned. Here's my question for you. Um, you yeah, I, I described a lot of the movie uh, during yeah. that, that first part. Yeah. And when you were watching the movie, um, yes. I, I, I'm sure you, that you had what I was saying in the back of your head. So here's my question. <laughs> How yeah. much of it did I get wrong? I'm not entirely sure because <laughs> I, uh, I fell asleep uh, through at least one rewatch. Like I, I had to watch the movie in chunks. Um, and so the Shatner being in the suit occurs earlier on, but it's never clear why he was in the suit to begin with. Um, but at the same time, like there were, there were certain moments where, um, yeah, it, it just, it went nowhere. It, it, there were all of these elements where it just they were all dead ends. There's this, there's this scene where they, you know, they don't show anything, but there's this horrific scene where Amy Acker is attacked uh, by these people, and then it's really uncomfortable, and because she's been disrobed when her boyfriend finds her, but then it's not. It's they thought she was an alien, and they yeah. were trying to see if she was an alien, and it was like, wait, what? That is just the weirdest thing and awful to use that sort of setup as a, you know, just as a plot device. It was in poor taste, really, uh, you know, and uh, I don't know, man, it, the, the the showdown at the end with the suit that like didn't kill the guy that kidnapped it, but maybe it did. And the aliens are condensation. I mean, it was just. It was just awful all over the place. I can't remember. Did this end by saying the end question mark? No, there was no question mark. Oh, okay. All right. I was just curious. No. Thank all goodness right. there was no question mark. All right. So, yes, perhaps we uh, made a mistake by trying to honor uh, Maurice Hurley's memory <laughs> by watching his movies because his movies were not good and that's probably not at all indicative of uh, his work as a writer on the whole. But let's make up for that, shall we? Yeah. Let's let's talk about what he did on Star Trek a little bit more in depth from, uh, I imagine, one of the few people who have actually had a chance to speak to him about uh, his work on Star Trek. And that's Ben Robinson. So without further ado, let's uh, segue now, uh, without any clunkiness whatsoever, into our interview with Ben. Today we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Ben Robinson. Now, Ben, thank you very much for coming on the show, first off. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, now, you, you listened to our show a couple weeks ago, which, you know, it always freaks me out when someone who uh, actually knows way more about this stuff than, our, than we do listens to the show and then comments because I'm like, what did we say? Surely we said something which is completely wrong. Um, but even if we did, you were very nice about it and, and just said, hey, you know, I, I interviewed uh, Maurice Hurley and, uh, you know, here's what's what. And 
it was great getting that voicemail. We played it, you know, the next the next episode, and so everyone's heard it, and we talked about it a little bit, kind of speculated on some of the things that you were saying. But we thought, hey, if we can get you to come on the show and, and talk to us more about Hurley, that would be great because, you know, as we had brought up on, on that show with, with Larry, not a lot of people have talked to him, and uh, there's not a lot which is known about him compared to uh, other Star Trek creators. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Now, for people who, who don't know you, um, you're in charge of the uh, Eagle Moss Starship collection, correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, but way back when, um, I started working on the Star Trek Fact Files, um, 1998, something like that. Um, and then I ran the US Star Trek magazine for four years. It was the, the perfect band one came out around the turn of the century. Um, so I've interviewed a lot of people for that. And then I ended up writing a couple of Haynes manuals. I did the, the Enterprises and the Klingon Bird of Prey. So, you know, I've, I've done my share of stuff, been around the block. Now, the Fact Files, that was, was that like a British uh, publication? Yeah, it was. It was. It's the world before Memory Alpha. It was the kind of paper version of oh. Memory Alpha. Um, it was all in universe, um, and there were thirty-two pages a week for three hundred and four issues. Um, we it, you know, thousands of illustrations. Well, no, probably hundreds and hundreds. Anyway, um, we got the first CG renders of stuff from the visual effects houses. We were getting stuff direct from Foundation and from uh, Eden. Um, we, you know, we created, as I say, thousands of illustrations, whether that was, um, blueprints of ships or isometric drawings of, uh, rooms. Uh, a lot of that material then went into the U S magazine because, uh, the license works differently in the U S and, uh, you know, the distribution methods were different as well. That's really cool. Now, now the magazine that, that was around at, you know, in the, the early part of the, the 21st century, that was that was a big deal, like here in the states, yeah, at it least. Was. Um, you know, we we uh, Max, my our other co-host, and and I, we we worked together at a movie theater, and you know, right down the street was a bookstore, and inevitably on our breaks we would go down there and buy magazines. So we had like the entire collection, you know, just stacked up on our bookshelf at at work, and we we always kept it there for years and years and years, just because. <laughs> You never know what you might need in, in that magazine. <laughs> and there was in particular like a a really good series. I think it was tied into the DVD release of Next mm-hmm. Gen where you guys went through like season by season, like talking to like the writers and stuff like that. That that was awesome. The unfortunate thing for me about that was that I wrote all of those articles and I enjoyed it so much that I'd keep doing more work when I should be sort of finishing it or going to sleep. Um, it's one of the worst things if you work on something that you love it's really difficult to know when to stop um, um, and yeah I mean there were people I didn't manage to talk to for those uh, articles which I still regret but yeah I talked to a lot of people um, and not just for those I mean you know we did lots of features like um, one of my favourites was uh, talking to Ira about how Cisco had evolved and how he changed in, in the course of seven years Um and I had really, really great times talking to a lot of those guys, and I, I still, I still talk to Ira quite regularly, actually, for the ship stuff. He's, he's one of those guys I know I can pick up the phone to and say, "Hey, Ira, do you remember anything about this?" Um, and he always says no, <laughs> and then tells me quite a lot. Um, 
but yeah, so I, I that was when I made a lot of contacts and I, I, I got to know a lot of people. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so now you're you're working on the the Eagle Moss ships. Um, did did you say that you you did like the Batman stuff too, like with, with their Batmobiles? Yeah, I mean well, I look after I look after a ton of stuff. So uh, Star Trek ships, uh, Doctor Who figurines. Um, oh, cool. Uh, then uh, Richard, who works with me for me, um, he looks after the Batmobiles, but I kind of keep a half an eye on that. Uh, we do Marvel and DC chess pieces. Uh, we're just about to do Walking Dead figurines. Um, oh. We are looking at reissuing our James Bond car collection, which I did for a long time. Oh wow! You know, so there's it's a very geeky place. There's a lot of uh, a lot of genre stuff. Yeah, these ships have you know sort of become the the, the talk of Trek FM. You know, I, I know that yeah. Chris, who who runs the network, is is a very big fan of them and. Uh, a lot of people are, and you, you, if you go to the Babel conference, you'll see everyone, you know, whenever there's, you know, new pictures or anything, they're like, oh, what's this? What's this? You know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, what what is it that, that you guys do with that? I mean, it, just for people who may not know. Well, um, guys, I mean, basically it's me um, and some people in China. Um, and I have a, an editor who works with me on the magazine and a designer. Um, it is the largest collection of model Star Trek ships anyone will ever do. Um, we're doing we're definitely going to do 90 issues. If people are still buying, we'll do more. Um, they're all uh, between, I can only do this in millimeters because I'm European, um, <laughs> between 100 and 140 millimeters long, which means they're not in scale with one another. But if they were in scale with one another, I always say people, some of them would be the size of your house and some of them would be the size they are. So <laughs> that's not very practical. But yes, yeah, so they are... Um, they're little die-cast models of ships, um, and we base them as far as possible on the original lightweight models they used on the show, because I know all the guys who uh, made those, and I know how to get hold of them, which is uh, rare. CBS don't know how to get hold of them. They've just been emailing me to ask <laughs> how to get some pictures of some ships. Um, um, and then sometimes we rebuild them based on photographic reference or whatever. And I, you know, I, I work with um, Rob Bonchun in particular uh, and Mojo for a while, who were you know big part of the VFX CG teams that worked on the shows. Yeah, I think uh, it, I could be wrong about this, but like the year that they were introduced, uh, I, I was in Vegas at the convention and I oh, saw a, yeah. a presentation. Was was that you? That was me. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you were like showing all of these like blueprints and stuff, and talking about like scans and, and computer models, and I'm like, this is way intense. Like these, uh, do these things actually fly? I'm not sure. <laughs> But yeah, I was very impressed. And, you know, I, I went home and told all my friends, like there's this one guy who I work with and he's like, oh my God. And he buys them. And, and one of the things which people seem to love about them is the magazines that come with them. Uh, what, yeah. what, can, you, can you talk about what, what those are? Um, yeah, so every, every ship comes with a magazine. This is to do with the way we sell things in Europe, um, where if you have a magazine, you can sell through newsstands, um, which is where most people buy a lot of stuff. Uh, so each one comes with, um, I think, 20 pages. I'm just, just about to write one, so I should know. Um, and at the front, we have a little profile of the ship in universe, um, normally with new renders of the ship um, from the guys who built it in CG, um, which is often 
the people who built it originally for the show. Occasionally we have to rebuild something. And then we do a piece about uh, the designing of it, which means I spend half my life chasing John Eves, um, like a lot of people. Um, or I know, I mean, I'm, I'm particularly obsessed with um, the design of Star Trek. I have the, easily the world's largest collection of concept art for Star Trek. Um, again, I have a lot more than CBS. Um, and I have it from every era and from every movie. Um, uh, so we do that. Uh, and then sometime, it's just, there was a practical model. So if there was, we can talk about how it was filmed. Um, otherwise, we'll do some kind of uh, extra piece to make up the pages that talks about uh, something relevant to that ship, whether it was the episode it appeared in or the uh, what was going on at the time. Um, so, for example, the last one that I did, I'm not even supposed to work on this, I'm supposed to be too busy, um, but I just, I sneak it in and do it. Um, we just did the Centaur, uh, which is a kitbash ship from uh, Deep Space Nine. It just appears in the one episode. Uh, and uh, it, it was a really, really satisfying one because I, I rang, I managed to get hold of Adam Buckner, who was the guy who built it. And he still had it in his loft, and he went up into his loft, and he brought it down and took photographs of it, which he then composited, which was what really threw me. I was like, Adam, I didn't expect you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's interesting because it was a kit-bashed one. They did the lights in a different way. They did it with UV tape because they couldn't put uh, actual lights inside. Um, and then because we were, you know, we didn't have that much to say about the design because the design was the model. Um, I, I got a hold of Ira, uh, which is why I was thinking of him recently, and we talked about the reason why Deep Space Nine went to war, because this was a warship. So that's the kind of stuff um, that goes into every issue. Uh, just as a quick question, since you have uh, such a, a library of uh, concept art, uh, do mm. you have a favorite design era of Star Trek? Is there one that particularly really strikes your fancy? I think, and the stuff Andy Probert did in the first season of Next Gen um, is still some of the most memorable stuff. Um, it's it's interesting because there's an attempt to reinvent everything. I mean, Andy also did some of the most beautiful stuff when he did the, the motion picture Enterprise as well, which he worked with Richard Taylor on. Um, that that's the era that sticks out in my mind. But I've talked to so many people, and, and the, you know, it's a little bit like asking to choose between your children, um, yeah. or between your friends in this case. Um, so I don't want to, you know, there are, there are days when I feel like oh, Voyager stuff is really really great, or Deep Space Nine stuff is really great. I mean, I, I'm often really interested in the stuff that is perhaps not dead ends, but the stuff that sort of was only there for a little while, so you don't get too used okay. to it. So yeah. I think a lot of the Ricardo Delgado or Jim Martin design stuff for Deep Space Nine is really interesting because it's a direction that kind of started and then it becomes very recognizably John Eves. I mean, Eves is great. He's a, you know, fantastic designer and he's a lovely guy. Um, but, you know, he worked on Star Trek for 10 years. So we saw a lot of John Eves, whereas we didn't see a lot of Ricardo Delgado or a lot of Jim Martin. And that stuff kind of fascinates me. Um, I mean, one of my other obsessions is, is uh, what's now known as Phase 2, the, the series from the 70s that never got mm. made. Um, and I would be, I'm, one thing I've never really done is track down 
as much of that stuff as I can. I've done my best, but I kind of figure a lot of it's hidden in strange places. You know, the Ralph Macquarie concepts or um, Ken Adam concepts. The Ken Adam ones have all been printed, I think. But, um, you know, there's a really interesting era of design there as well. And again, Joe Jennings doing stuff for the TV, some of which survived into the motion picture. So, I, I mean, like you're saying that you have at least 90 of these coming out, and I, I know a lot of those are out already. Um, is there at like one or two which really stand out for you for whatever reason as being like stuff that you're really proud of, either because it's like an obscure ship that you never thought would be, you know, made into a, a, a model or, or just because you think it's like a really good piece? Uh, well, we've just done the original series Enterprise, um, and I'm, I'm slightly annoyed by the deflector dish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, I, I find it incredibly pleasing. Um, I had an enormous amount of help from Gary Kerr, who is like the world expert on the Enterprise. Um, and obviously, they're restoring the original one at the Smithsonian at the moment. So that was all going on at the same time. But Gary has all this like incredibly detailed stuff about what color it is and the paint and all that. And just when I got the first painted model in, and it was like exactly the right color. And I was just, it's just so pleasing. Um, so that's probably my my favorite, and that just shows how old I am. Um, <laughs> the other ones, I mean, there are ones that have come out really, really well. Um, I think the Reliant turned out really, really well. Um, but I think it always does. I think there are a lot of really nice models of the Reliant. Um, the Akira, I was amazed. No one had ever done a model of the Akira before. Um, and I got stick because I didn't put the registry number. Well, it's got a registry number. But it doesn't have the name on the front, but it doesn't have the name on the front if you watch the movie. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it comes and goes. There, there are a couple that are disappointing, which I won't mention. Um, but most of the time, it's kind of like something I've done recently is what I'm most pleased with. The Centaur's really sweet. It's a really nice little model. And, and what do you have uh, coming out in the near future that people can look forward to? Um, oh God, I, I'm I'm so far away from what's actually coming out because it's on a different schedule in the US and the UK. So in the US, you've got I think you might have just had the Enterprise C, um, and you've got well you've got the original Enterprise coming, which as I say, I'm really really pleased with. Um, stuff coming up, we're just um, just rebuilding the ships for insurrection because the CG models seem to have been lost. Fortunately, I had. Um, we did artwork of them for the fact files, which we were able to use to reconstruct the, the CG models. Um, there's a, the one that's gone down really, really well here in the UK, which I was slightly surprised by, is the Fortunate, you know, the ECS Fortunate from Enterprise, um, mm. because what was really nice on that one is that all these little decals were actually on the CG model, so I could lift them straight off the CG model. We printed them, and then they are on the on the physical model and, and people are amazed that we can get that much detail in. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's like another 20 that are in some stage of production. So I'm desperately trying to remember what's where at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw that, uh, when you were at San Diego, there were a couple, what, there was the botany Bay, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. And the Antares. Yeah. They were there. Uh, and the, the Kelvin, which is a special. Yeah, the Kelvin, I was like, oh, my God, that ship is amazing, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, well, that's, I, I, know, can see, I can of, see you a little bit. Uh, the JJ Enterprise behind you, though. Yes, <laughs> I do have my, my JJ Enterprise, and uh, yes, it's, it's beautiful. I like it quite a bit. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if, 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 if I can't remember, but if people follow me on Twitter, um, then they'll see what we're doing because I keep posting stuff as it lands on my desk. So, Excellent, excellent. That's the answer. All right. So, well, let's get into Maurice Hurley a bit and see, uh, see what's going on mm. with him. So you interviewed him for the, the magazine. That's the, the, the one that was in the, the early aughts. Uh, yeah, that's right. So I was actually doing, we were doing a Borg special. Um, and as you started to pull at all of these threads about the Borg, you realized that nobody really knew very much about their origins. Um, Michael Pella didn't. Um, and Brannon and Ron didn't know anything about where they'd come from. As far as they were concerned, they were just these villains that had been in an episode and were cool. Um so I, I kind of realized I, I had to get a hold of, of Maury Hurley, um, which was not easy um, because Maury had had a difficult end to his time with Star Trek. I mean, as I said, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who worked on the first two seasons really didn't want to talk about it afterwards. Um, and Maury was pretty insistent that he didn't want to talk about it. But I somehow managed to persuade him to engage in this kind of email correspondence where I asked him things about the Borg. I think I managed to ask him things he didn't expect to be asked, and that's what made him answer. Um, and then later on, when we were doing these uh, Next Generation retrospectives as the DVDs came out, um, I managed to get him to talk about the first season again. Um, but when it came to the second season, he was just... Uh, insistent that there was nothing that would make him talk about it. He said that it had been a very difficult time uh, and that he had made mistakes amongst, he was among many people who had made mistakes um, and that it was better if we just didn't talk about it. Um, I have, however, talked to some of the other people who were involved, so I have some idea of what was going on. So, uh, going back to season one, I guess, um, when I, I know that he came on to the show pretty early, like what, like when they were shooting like the second or third episode. But when did he actually like take over the the writing staff on that show? Do you have okay? To that's a that's a really complicated question. Um, what happened was that in the the first season of Next Gen, Gene was running the writing staff, but Gene wasn't well. Um, Gene would disappear. Uh, Gene would be un, un, unwell. He would be inconsistent. Uh, and as a result, other writers would come along and would end up taking stuff on and doing things. Um, at the beginning, that was probably Bob Lewin more than anybody else. Um, but Maury became more and more important. So um, the way Maury puts it, and I think he says it in that Chaos on the Bridge, is there was a point when Gene went to Tahiti uh, and Maury took over. So I think that's around about, uh, we'll always have Paris. So sort of the last quarter of the season, uh, Maury was really the main man. Yeah, so what I think was interesting about this was that, uh, and I was thinking about this before we talked, that you had this situation where Gene was running the writing staff, but he wasn't physically well enough um, 
or always together enough to to really control it on a day-to-day page-by-page basis so there were other people who ended up doing things and that one of the reasons that there was a lot of uh, resentment and a lot of difficulty is because they were never formally installed as right this guy is running the show so you had very experienced people um, both within Star Trek so you have Dorothy and you have David Gerald there and but you also have very experienced people like Bob Lewin who you know has never written for Star Trek before but has been around since Mission Impossible and has worked on every show imaginable and Murray who had come off the Equalizer and Simon Simon which is why he knew Michael Pillar um, you know he's a very uh, I think a very bullish guy by his own account he, he's willing to sort of step in and, and try and make stuff happen and that is a very sort of difficult, very fluid situation. So you might one day think someone's in charge and then the next day think someone else is in charge. Um, and I, I think that made for, a, you know, a very difficult environment and a lot of resentment. Um, it, once Murray had been installed as the the kind of co-executive producer, which happens towards the end of the first season, um, he stays in that role until the end of the second season. But he's still in this situation where there's um, a, an unwell gene uh, who's not always unwell. You know, sometimes Gene's very much there, other times he's not, uh, sort of in the background. So Maury's trying to run the show the way he thinks the show should be run, which has come out of his discussions with Gene, and his, which we can talk about in a minute, his theory about what the show should be. And he's telling other writers, no, this is wrong or whatever. But then those same writers might go and have a conversation with Gene and come back and say, well, but Gene loves it. So, you know, if you want to talk about why he left, I think that's probably the, you know, the ultimate reason is that he wasn't 100% in charge. Um, and, you know, you can argue about whether he was right or whether he was wrong. But I think that's a very difficult situation for anyone to be in, that you're kind of running the show, but not completely. Yeah. Why do you think that he was chosen as the showrunner over these other people who seem to be, you know, on the surface at least, maybe more suited to the position? It, the reason that Maury ends up in charge, I think, is because he's still there. Um, you know, by this point, Dorothy's left, uh, David Gerald's left, um, Bob Lewin is just on the point of leaving, which is why he doesn't end up doing it, because he's the other big candidate for the person to take over. Um, Herb Wright uh, leaves about that time, possibly because Maury gets it instead of him. I'm not quite sure. Um, and then you have basically um, what people like Gene would probably have regarded as the kids who've come in. So you've got Hans and Ricky Manning. You've got um, you've got Tracy Tormey, who's you know quite a young man at this point. Um, and then Melinda Snodgrass, Hannah Louise Shearer come in. So really, that you know, it, it's kind of Maury gets it almost by default because everybody else has has left. So you were saying that uh, what what he had sort of agreed upon, and you know, and I mean, they touch up, uh, upon this on the documentary, and you know, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It seems really interesting that you know he seemed to be uh, enforcing Roddenberry's concepts and ideas. But then Roddenberry maybe wasn't necessarily holding up his end of the bargain. By, I mean, it, would, would that be an accurate? Uh, I think it's, it's it's one way of describing what happened that is not untrue. Um, I think 
a big part of the problem is that nobody knew what this show was supposed to be. Um, and you get that consistently from everyone who's working on it. That they come in thinking that they are going to write Star Trek. Um, you know, most of them had been fans of, and all of them had seen the original series. Um, and there are things in the original series that they want to write. So they're writing conflicts between people, you know. So, like, in the original series, McCoy constantly runs onto the bridge and says, Jim, you're mad. Um, and yet Gene says, no, no, you can't do that. Nobody disagrees with anybody on this show. Um, they're trying to write things where there's a lot of action, where people punch people. That's not really the, the size of the show. Um, and nobody knows what it is. Um, and Gene is very, very much in this position where he's telling people it's not this. Um, and he's giving them some sort of guidance about what it is. But I don't think any one person really had a clear handle on, on what the show should be. Um, and probably including Gene. I mean, you know, this is, it's 20 years since he wrote the original series. I mean, he's, he's developed all these other aspirations and things that he wants this show to do that the original series didn't do. Um, you know, I, I mean, Murray, I've actually got a quote in front of me from Murray. So he's saying, you know, for, for Gene, it was intended to explore science and social com concepts. It was future tense anthropology sociology. Um, and it's not about character. You know, he, he's absolutely insistent that Gene didn't really want character. Um, Gene saw the, the individual characters as being parts of a whole. So, you know, the famous sort of Kirk, Spock, McCoy thing. Um, that, you know, Kirk is decisioned and Spock is logic and McCoy is emotion. The, the, the seven characters in The Next Generation were meant to be a kind of an expanded version of that. Um, and when the writers tried to, to do something different, Gene would, would strike it down. So Maury comes away with his concept of, of what the show should be, but other people come away with their own concepts and they're different. Um, and that kind of leads to conflict. Yeah, I can imagine how if you have no one there to sort of like guide the ship and say like, hey, this is how we're doing it, that would be that would be problematic. And it sounds like Hurley was trying to bring that sort of stability to it, but but Roddenberry was undercutting him. Is that he, accurate? Um, yeah, I think sometimes. I mean, I think you want to remember that Gene's health was a real issue here. So there are times when people tell you stories about Gene not remembering what had happened in the last meeting or Gene would love a script and then, then turn on it. So one of the reasons that there's so much stress in that first season, the first two seasons is that people write scripts and they'll get them finished and then they'll be killed. So, you know, that is often the kind of seems to have been the straw that broke a lot of camels backs that they're like, Oh, I thought that everyone loved the script and now I'm told we're not doing it or it's been given to someone to do a rewrite and they've just completely rewritten it um, and taken out all the stuff I loved in it. And I think that Murray quite often ended up being the guy who did that rewrite um, and that, you know, caused some stress as well. All right, so so season one ended 
Uh, now, I mean, there's there's one thing that I want to touch on on the end of season one, but maybe we can come back to that in a minute because it involves setting up the Borg. Mm. Um, now, the writing strike occurred and everything, and I know that messed up stuff like in between seasons one and two, and that's why season two is shorter and all that yeah. stuff. Well, it actually messes up the the end of season one and the beginning of the book. So... Um, just as they're getting towards the end of the season, the writer's strike is going to start. Uh, so they have to rush these scripts through. And Murray writes, um, I forgot what it's called, the last episode of the season, Neutral Zone. Uh, writes the Neutral Zone in, he said, sort of two days flat uh, in order to beat the strike. Uh, and that is the first Borg story. So, the and he loved that story. He was like, it was his, his favourite Star Trek story that he wrote until until Q Who, um, and the idea is that the the mysterious aliens who have been attacking these outposts along the neutral zone would eventually be revealed to be the Borg, um, and he sets up the Romulans because <laughs> although there's a ban on using original series aliens, he's brought them in in order to kill them. So his idea is that in the course of the next season. Uh, the big mystery is going to be that the Romulans have been wiped out by some mysterious force. Wow. Um, and Picard spends a lot of that season trying to work out who has done this um, and have Q pop up and reveal things to him. So, okay. Okay, there's a lot there. A lot yeah. there. <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just put that off to the side for a second and we will come back to that. Let's before we we start talking about the what ifs, which, I mean, anyone who listens to this show knows that I cannot get enough of like Star Treks that may have been like that. Just mm-hmm. this, this is my my favorite concept ever. But before we get into that, um, let's take a look at what actually ended up being season two. Okay. Um, unless it makes more, well, yeah, yeah. Let, does, let, let's do that because it, there there's actually something about the whole. And I suppose, I mean, maybe season two reveals a little bit about the the conflicted direction as well, like with what we got, because if there was an original desire to try to have everybody get along, it seems to me that Dr. Pulaski sort of flies in the face of that. Mm. So well, there's another desire, which is to okay. be more like the original series. Um, so there's a big contradiction there straight away. Um, and Gene apparently was blind to this contradiction. Um, so everybody gets along, but it's also got to be more like the original series. Um, whenever you talk to anybody about what it was like working on the show at that period, they say that they were getting a lot of grief for not being the original series. Um, and that everybody is trying to make it more like the original series. So the idea is that you bring Pulaski in and you have a kind of Riker-Pulaski data triumvirate that is a bit like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and they're trying very hard to get that going. Um, but actually, I think it's Murray who said this, that um, the problem is that when Pulaski picks on data, data's never going to fight back. So it's just like picking on a child, whereas... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. When it was Spock and McCoy, you know, they were both give as good as they were given. What, what do you? What changed because of the, the the writing strike in season two? Now I know you talked about how they were kind of like rushing through the end of season one, 
but um, not not necessarily what would have been, but like what did we end up getting that we may not have seen uh, in season two? I don't well, know. Well, you, if you, you know definitely that. wouldn't have got the child. Um, so <laughs> the opening episode is um, okay. literally one that they pull out of a drawer. So this is a, a script from the, the 1970s series where they literally are able to pull out Decker and Ilea and insert um, Riker and Troy. Um, and that's because they just need to get a script into development. Um, you know, one of the things Maury said is when he came on at the beginning of season one, one of the reasons he, he came on is he thought, well, this is going to be nice and easy. They've already got 14 scripts in development. We've only got to do another 12. Um, you know, this show's in pretty good shape. And then I think he said every single one of those 14 scripts was basically torn up and rewritten. And they ended up developing something like 40 scripts in the first season instead of 26. Um, so the show has a bad track, track record in getting um, shows into development. Um, and then you start season two and you're not even allowed to work. So... You know, I'm not quite sure when the strike finished, but, you know, it's a couple of months into when they should have been working on stuff at least. Um, so they just don't have scripts in development. Uh, they're running around desperately trying to get stuff from anywhere they can. Um, and, you know, some of the writers disagree about what those scripts should be and what direction they should be. And Gene is still not 100% confident of the direction that he wants the show to go in. Um, and interestingly enough, actually, if you if, we, say, if you talk to Michael Piller, if you had talked to Michael Piller, um, Michael said it's exactly the same situation when he came in on season three, that there were no scripts in development, and that's why he started going through the, the pile of submissions, and he ends up finding Ron Moore, and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. So, so season two, I mean, I, I think everyone is kind of in agreement that that season was was kind of a mess and it sounds like Hurley was of that opinion as well um and it sounds like he got out while the the getting was good <laughs> i think the getting was bad by the time I got out. <laughs> um I, you know I, it's an interesting thing about season two um it, people think of it as this sort of weaker season um but actually it's got some really great episodes in it um you know, you've got Measure of a Man, you've got um, Q Who, uh, you've got the the story with the Iconians. Um, you know, this is this is not a a disastrous season. Um, I think it's a season when people don't quite know what they're doing, uh, and tonally it's all over the place. Uh, and obviously, it has some of the weakest episodes as well. It has Shades of Grey. Um, but it's, you know, I think it was a nightmare to work on, but I think it was also a, a real kind of breakthrough year in a lot of ways, and a lot of good stuff did happen in that year. I guess that is kind of interesting. I never really yeah. thought of it that way. But, yeah, you know, there are some some standouts, um, but there's a lot of... Other lot episodes, of, yeah. Yeah, crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm just looking at the list. I mean, you know, you've got Elementary Dear Data. Um, yeah. You've got Matter of Honor. Measure of a Man. Um, okay, you've got some slightly messy ones, uh, but you've got Contagion, um, Q Who. Q Who, yeah. Um, the Emissary. I mean, you get Kayla. I mean, you know, that's a huge victory as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, 
you know, it's it's a it's a mixed bag of a season rather than a disaster of a season. It's not like um, original series season three where you are struggling to find something that you really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. So now, I guess going back to the Borg, you know, I mean, we we see what happened in a sense, you know, where, you know, they're introduced conceptually in the neutral zone and then Q who is their true introduction. And then we don't see them again until best of both worlds. Mm. So I, I guess, I guess let's talk about what the plan was and then maybe we can talk about what happened and, and why the plan didn't uh, come to fruition or, or, or whatever. What what was what was his plan? Because it sounds like he had big ideas for for the Borg. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, if we just wind back in a slightly different direction to talk about where the idea for the Borg came from. Yeah. Um, and that came from Mori looking at Q and saying, "Well, Gene has created God, and he's put God in the series." Um, and Mori's first script uh, is a Q script. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, the one when Riker is offered the, the power of the cue. Hiding cue. Hiding cue. Yeah. Um, so he's he's written that. So he's kind of interested in cue as a character. Um, and he also said that he thought that, you know, science fiction is always metaphorical and it's always kind of about the search for God to a certain degree. Um, so he has this idea that Q is God. Um, and I, I heard you guys talking about this before and saying, like, Brannon having said you know gene the famous atheist and yet he puts god in the show um and he put god in the show so that picard could tell him to piss off um it's it's gene's idea is that you know god turns up and you say well actually we don't need you anymore um you know we've surpassed Mm. you we don't need you so maury takes that idea and then he says so what about the devil he says when do you need god is you need god when you're confronted by the devil so his idea was to introduce this force that was the opposite of Q, as it were, or that only Q could save you from. So he sets up this idea that there are the, this unstoppable, um, completely unreasonable species. And originally they were going to be insects. I think Larry got them a little bit mixed up mm-hmm. with the uh, the contagion things. They were going to be full-sized insects. Um, or they were going to, at one point, they talked about them looking like the aliens in the abyss. So they'd be like um, kind of watery or something like that. They were going to be properly alien. But part of Maury's feeling was that, you know, you can't reason with insects. You you can't reason with an anthill. Um, and also, you know, he thought about insects being kind of nasty and scary because of the way they, they interact with dead bodies. So he has this idea um, that they're going to be there on the opposite end so that Picard can't just reject Q and that he, this is an adversary that you need God to save you from. Interesting. Okay. So almost like uh, Q at that point becomes, I guess, sort of a, like an, an expression of like an Old Testament God that's sort of like, oh, yeah, you don't need me? Here you go. Exactly. And that's exactly what happens in Q Who, where he comes along and he goes, yeah. you know, okay, you don't need me? Let me show you something. This is what's coming over the hill. Interesting. Now, in, in Chaos on the Bridge, he says that, uh, you know, the Borg were going to be the arc of season two. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's a really interesting statement because 
it could mean any of a million of things, you know. But I guess just taking it at its face value is saying that, you know, basically there was going to be some sort of arc in season two, which is rare for Star Trek, especially at that point in time, and that it was going to involve the Borg. Would that be an accurate uh, assessment of yeah, that statement? Yeah, that's a, that's a very accurate assessment. I mean, the only thing I think, we, again, we forget is that there is actually an arc in season one. Um, that the conspiracy aliens, that they actually, you know, they're in three, four episodes, um, for, you know, and then we get them finally resolved. Um, so there was a precedent for having some kind of storyline that was running in the background that would have to be resolved towards the end of the season. Mm. Um, the difficulty was that Gene was violently opposed to any kind of serialization. So, you know, like Larry was talking about um, Times Square, and that the reason that that got changed was simply because Gene did not want to tie two episodes together. Um, he wanted them to be standalone. But Having said that, you know, people managed to get the conspiracy aliens past Gene in the first season. So Murray, I think, thought that, you know, this was something that he could do. So Neutral Zone, I mean, even though it may have been rushed, that was always sort of intended, at least conceptually, to be the start of the Borg, which makes sense, right? Because it was the finale of season one. Well, and they'd already been talking about the book. So Hans told me that uh, they'd had various, you know, concept meetings about the Borg and um, what were they? Um, And it was actually Hans who said that they, as a writing staff, had been talking about the idea that the Borg were America, you know, that they just assimilate everything and uh, you don't have any choice about it. They just make you part of them. Um, And Hans also tells a story about how um, they'd kind of abandoned the idea that they would be uh, insects because it was just too expensive. There was, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. And they had a meeting in which... um, Maury was explaining how they would have bits of technology grafted onto and everything. And Gene said, oh, they're cyborgs. But he hiccuped. And it came out as, oh, they're Borg. And Maury, <laughs> yes, that's what they should be called. They're the Borg. Um, uh, so that's how they got their name. So was, like, Q-Who supposed to be... I mean, I guess this is kind of like a two-part question, but is was Q-Who as a story supposed to be... Um, the next part in this arc, or was there going to be some sort of mid-step? No, and also, yeah. also was Q who supposed to come when it did, or it, you know, if if everything had worked out the way that it was supposed to, would Hurley have made that like the premiere of season two? Um, I don't know the answer to all of those questions. Um, I do, and I don't think Imori even knew the answer to all of those questions. I asked him some of them. Um, his plan, as he told me, was that, I guess, in the opening of the season, um, the Federation gets this message that something really, really bad has happened on the other side of the neutral zone. So following up from the neutral zone, and they go in there, and the Romulans have, are wiped out. They're all dead. Um, and this, this kind of telltale... Thing of all of the, the Roman cities having been scooped out like they were in the neutral zone. Um, and the only thing that there is, and we said this was going to be the kind of little hope that Picard hangs on to, 
is that somehow the Romulans destroyed one of the ships that was attacking them and they, they don't know how. Um, and in fact, I don't think Maury himself ever worked how, but this was going to be his kind of little clue to the future that was going to be there. Um, and then Picard, I guess they would have carried on with regular episodes, but Picard would have been kind of involved in this kind of mystery of, well, what happened to the Romulans? Who did that? Um, and then the idea was that um, Times Squared was meant to be about um, Q reintroducing himself and, and Maury said that the episode was kind of meaningless without the Q element which was taken out at the end but the idea was going to be that, that Q had actually caused this vortex that sent Picard back in time and then in the next episode uh, you would actually have seen the moment that Picard went back from uh, and that's the point at which he realises that Q is involved in this whole thing. Um, and that would have gone on to become Q Who, which I guess in his original concept would have been a third of the way into the kind of Borg arc, I guess. Mm. So where did it go from there? Um, he never got that far. <laughs> um, I asked him, I said, well, what would have happened? And he said, oh, I don't know. Um He's, I said to him, what would the ultimate resolution have been? And he said, I don't know, because, you know, can there ever be a resolution between God and the devil? And what happens if you're Picard and you get the chance to, to kill the devil? And saying, does that result in some kind of um, cosmic unbalancing? Would that be like a really bad thing to do? Um, and he said that the fact that he didn't know the answers was uh, why he thought it was an interesting story. He said, you know, if yeah. you can't answer those questions, then you're on to something. Now you said that uh, you know he he saw that Q and and the Borg as being sort of like uh, you know opposite sides of a coin or whatever. Mm. Um, so would it be safe to assume that uh, Q would have continued to play a role in the Borg story as it continued? Yeah, I think from what he the way he described to me is that they would always have been together. Hmm. Um, that this was a way of doing Q stories. I think. Um, you know that this is you can't investigate you can't investigate the concept of god without the concept of the devil i think was his thinking so yeah q would always have been there um and i guess picard would have been increasingly humbled um and q would have been kind of dropping him little hints um I guess maybe in the way that, you know, kind of worked out in all good things where it's like, well, I got you in this trouble, but I'm kind of, you know, telling you the way out. Um, but I guess that would have, um, you know, then what he, he hadn't resolved is whether Picard would have solved the problem on his own or whether he would have needed Q's help or how benign or otherwise Q would have been. Because I think when you look back at the first couple of seasons, Q is a lot less benign than we came to think of him as being. He's he's a much more, like you said, an Old Testament god. He's um, pretty unreasonable and pretty demanding. It's weird thinking about Q, who, you know, like the Q and the Borg as like a pair and together because mm. like, you know, when looking at it back at, you know, in, in, in retrospect and even like when like I was starting to watch it, like I think I said that that first time I saw, you know, Q, who and best of both worlds for the first time on like the same day, you know, so it was never really a thing. But Q, who is always like, like there's there's people out there who 
despise the character of Q and you know I'll say like oh there's Q who we got to watch this episode and they're like oh Q and I'm like no it's the Borg you know it's it's like it's the episode where it's got both of those guys who everyone loves from next gen but yeah. they don't aside from that aside from the introduction they don't really seem to be you know paired at all in um in in the rest of the show and I'm wondering if well, I guess I have two questions. I guess my first question would be, did the writing staff in season three know what Hurley's general plan was and just say, ah, we don't care, we're going to do our own thing? Or did they just kind of see what existed and have to figure it out for themselves? It's definitely the latter. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I talked to Michael Keller about this and Michael said that he hadn't got a clue. Um and that, you know, when he came in, there was this list of stuff that you could work with. There were these scripts in development. Um, and, you know, the Borg seemed really cool, but he, you know, they were very powerful. And he was kind of a bit worried about how do I bring them in and use them? I, you know, I can't write them in the way we can write Romulans or Klingons or whatever. Um and to be honest, Michael said that he, he wrote Best of Both Worlds thinking that he wasn't going to have to fix it, um, that he didn't have to come back and write the second part. So um, he didn't mind that they were unbeatable. <laughs> he thought it was going to be someone else's problem. Um, so, all- yeah, no, I mean, the only people he might have known, I guess, were Hans and Ricky, who had been on the staff. But it also seems that, like, the, the writer's room, uh, which was this when it was such a strong part of the series from season three going forward, didn't really seem to function before that. Um, you know, that uh, I don't think people sat down and broke stories together in quite that way. I don't know. I mean, I know they didn't in the first season. I'm not sure whether they started to do that in the second season. Interesting. Yeah. I, I guess my second part to that question would be, did Maurice Hurley see the best of both worlds and does he have a, or did he have a, a reaction to it? Um, I don't know. I didn't ask him that. Um, I, I think he probably did. Um, I mean, he and Michael were friends. Um, and, you know, Maurice was still kind of around. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think, you know, he was watching regularly. Um, he might have tuned in out of curiosity to see it. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't his concept and I don't think he, you know, I think what he would have liked about it was it was finally doing some of the kind of stuff that everybody had been trying to do on the show, but Gene had been stopping them from doing, I guess. Um, you know, he said that the the problem as a writer is you come in and you try to introduce character. So, you, you know, your gut instinct is character. And he said in his case, character and action. Um, but what Gene wanted was concept. He wanted this, these, you know, it was about ideas. It wasn't about characters. It was about metaphorical, high-concept science fiction ideas. And that's, you know, when Maury was happiest with the shows, was when they were delivering that kind of thing. Um, and that's, you know, that, I guess, is when he found himself in conflict with some of the other writers, was that uh, he would say, this isn't the kind of concept that we should be doing. And they would disagree with him, uh, I guess. Hmm. Uh, it's, no. it's really interesting. Well, is is there anything else that uh, 
that that we're missing that you you, you want to get out there about Maurice Hurley or? Um, yeah, there were, there's quite a lot. I mean, we've talked about the book, but there's quite a lot about um, Maurice does talk about with the other scripts. He talks about how, you know, when he first came in and he um, he did, his first job was a rewrite on um, Where No Man Has Gone Before, Where No One Has Gone Before, so. Um, and Gene hated it. He, you know, he just did this first rewrite and Gene absolutely loathed it. Um, and he said Gene was very... Um, very passionate in his loathing of it. He couldn't understand. I think, you know, he, he said, well, look, it's just words on a page. You don't like them. I'll change them. Um, and he said that was when he started to understand that Star Trek was not just a job. You know, he's saying that you go into another show. It is just words on a page. You came into Star Trek. It was, it's not, it's, um, you know, it was Gene Roddenberry's vision. It was incredibly important to him. Um, and the, you know, that he actually, rewrote the traveler to be gene roddenberry he said you know that that was that was his concept it's like okay this this is this is my understanding of gene this kind of um kind of strange guy from the future i mean you know maury had no no faith that the world would end out the way it did in star trek um you know he firmly believed that we were on a kind of uh hand cut to hell um and that this show suggesting otherwise was a wacky doodle, as he always said. Um, I think he said it to me. He says it in Chaos on the Bridge. It's everywhere you look. Um, so, you know, he, when he he came up with this um, take, um, it wasn't his take by any means. It was you know him trying to do what he thought Gene wanted. Um, he said, you know, there was no point fighting Gene. He said, when Gene was healthy, you you you. You lost and you left. Um, you know there was, uh, but he did fight him, and he said, you know, and that um, he, he pushed him, and I think you know that Gene kind of grudgingly accepted a lot of what Mori was doing. So you know, he he's definitely involved in a lot of things that really uh, helped to push the show along in in the right way. Um, but he's very much you know buying into this idea that it's high concept it's you know this is it. he is you know i know dorothy and david gerald in that chaos and the bridge were saying you know he wasn't a science fiction writer but actually in lots of ways he, he was very kind of pure in his his desire for real science fiction stories um which i, I thought was quite interesting yeah uh, he sounds like an interesting guy and you know it's it's one of those things where it seems like uh lots of times he, he gets you know, I mean, as as is the case with a lot of uh, Star Trek, you know, he gets blamed for for certain um, shortcomings, which you know may not be his his fault. You know, I mean, he was a, a victim of of you know the time and the place, and yeah. uh, it sounds like I mean, based on some of the things that he wanted to do, had he been given free reign, it could have been some amazing stuff. You know, some of the best of all of Star Trek. I think so. I mean, I think that, well, the, the fascinating thing is whenever you talk to people about episodes they wrote in the first or the second season and you're listening to them describe the episode and you're thinking, God, that sounds really interesting. That's a really good idea. And then you think, but it's not what ended up on screen. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, um, I, I remember talking to Herb Wright about Angel One and you're like going, this, you're describing this really interesting story about prejudice and about apartheid and all of that. And it's just, you know, Riker in a dress. Um, so there were things that that were going wrong 
um, in it's sort of a slip between cup and lip in the first couple of seasons, I think, and that what people were trying to do and what was ending up on screen were not as unified as, as they would become later. And, and the other thing that struck me when I was thinking about this is, you know, I think Maureen gets a lot of um, grief because a lot of people fell out with him um, and a lot of, you know, people felt that he was the reason they left the show. Um, but if um, Michael Piller had left at the end of season three, as he planned to do, I think um, you know we, people would be look. A lot of people would be talking about him in the same light. Mm. Um, you know, Hans and Ricky and Melinda Snodgrass left in the third season. Um, you know, it, it, Star Trek was still this kind of dysfunctional writers' room, even though what ends up on the screen in season three suddenly starts to become really, really consistently good all the time. Uh, and I think it's only when when Michael came back for season four, um, and when they'd lost Ira, which is you know, one of the great losses to Star Trek, but it's only then that it it starts to kind of be settled. Um, and I think it's at that point, I think guess Gene had stepped away more, um, and you know Rick and Rick and Michael were really in control. And I think Maury was never in a position to get that degree of control. Um, but equally, Gene wasn't well enough to to have it either. So, you know, it, it feels like there was this sort of terrible power vacuum, um, and that that caused conflict. That, you know, that people were were unhappy with one another, uh, probably because of the situation, really, rather than because of the people involved. Or I guess you know the people behaved in ways they wouldn't have done in a different situation. Um. Well, it's it's really interesting, you know, all yeah. this stuff. You know, I mean, we I, th- I think we we have a, a much better uh, understanding of of Hurley and his work than we did when we entered this this whole uh, conversation. So, thank you very much for for joining us. I mean, we 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 do really appreciate it, even though very much so. <laughs> I gather this is your catchphrase, that you really appreciate it. It is, <laughs> yes. You're called out on it. So I've started telling people that we don't appreciate them at all. But here <laughs> I'm going to say that, yes, we do appreciate this uh, a lot. And um, I think our listeners do, too, because I've learned more about Maurice Hurley in the past hour than I, I have in the past, you know, 20 years. So yeah, thank you very much. And uh, anytime you want to come back, uh, you're more than welcome to. But um, where, where can people find you on the Internet and, and whatnot? Um, well, my Twitter feed, I can never remember what my Twitter name is, actually. I think I'm Ben C.S. Robinson. Um, that's, I kind of um, spend a bit of time on there as often as I can, just putting little previews up of what we're doing. Uh, we also have a, a website called herocollector.com, which is kind of loosely tied into uh, a lot of e-commerce stuff. Uh, we're not doing that much with it at the moment. There's a lot of news on there, but there are, we're talking about ramping up and putting some features out. Uh, one of the things I used to do in the magazine was this kind of statistical analysis of Star Trek. Um, like, how likely were you to actually die if you were wearing a red shirt? Um, and with graphs showing, you know, how many dead red shirts there are per season and who died fastest. We, um, at, 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 at our theater, in the booth, we had on the wall the graph showing... Uh, percentage of time that wesley saves the day yeah it was up there it was it was part i saw what looked saw it every day when i went to work so yes well we're going to update and reprint some of those on the website um there's like how how many admirals are sane um i think as a percentage it's very very small 
Um, I remember thinking that even Kirk goes a bit mad when he becomes an admiral. Um, but we need to update that one because it didn't take an enterprise where the admirals were reasonably saying, let's be so. Um, but there's, so there's that kind of stuff. Um, we're doing a big Walking Dead collection and actually we've got this massive interview with Charlie Adlard, who one of our um, writers happens to know really well. Um, but yeah, I'm keen to get more more stuff out there. I mean, I'm kind of aware now of how much stuff I personally have and and how little of it uh, is out there, actually. Um, you know, I was looking through the transcripts of the interviews that I have, and, you know, when Leonard died, I wrote a piece for StarTrek.com, um, and, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten a lot of the stuff that was in these old interviews, so I kind of feel like a lot of it ought to get out there again. Um, so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to come back and talk about. I, I will, I will give you a challenge. You can ask me about almost anything to do with Star Trek, and I probably have something to say about it. Excellent. Um, well, that's we'll, not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> well, well, we'll take you up on that for sure. Absolutely. But, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much again. And uh, yeah, anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a pleasure, and thank you for having me. As my mother would tell me to tell you. <laughs> Well, that was a very interesting conversation that we had with Ben. It's weird, you know, like as 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 Star Trek fans and as someone, you know, who has spent uh, a, a good portion of his life reading about the behind the scenes of Star Trek and everything and and then doing this show and and talking to to people like Larry and John Tenuto and uh, all these guys, it's like you know, there's not much that you see or you read that you didn't already know about. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then to talk to someone like Ben and, you know, he's got all this info about this little corner of the Star Trek universe where, like, I didn't know anything about it. It's like, yeah. wow, you know? There's still stuff out there to to, to discover, you know, in, in terms of uh, the making of this show. It's it's pretty crazy. It's amazing. I, I mean, it really is. I mean, you, you hit it on the head. Like, after so long to find out that there are things that we don't know or that were talked about just in passing, like all of those little pieces of knowledge that are floating out there, like it, you know, I, I guess it's what motivates us all as fans to keep going on and keep discussing things because we know, you know, to borrow a line from the X-Files, that the truth is out there. Yeah, yeah. So So thank you very much, uh, again, Ben, for for joining us, it's it's awesome, and uh, I hope that we have him on again soon to talk about someone else. Indeed, who who knows someone, someone, someone. Well, it was fun talking to Ben about Maurice Hurley today, but that's just one of the things we're talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. So now we're going to have to spend like a half an hour talking about these Star Trek comics when I could be reading Star Wars comics. Yes. I hope the listeners appreciate the <laughs> sacrifices that we're making to bring this moderately entertaining podcast to them. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding. 
which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axnar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! Well, you telling me that I need to make love to this alien woman or she's going to die? Well, (laughs) for king and country, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right, only on Star Trek. Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full, and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. But you would never pick up on that based on the way that it plays out, aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, <laughs> you know? The 602 Club. The prequels are the most autobiographical uh, works that Lucas has done. Because if you follow Anakin's arc, he comes onto the scene, nobody's seeing him coming, and then he's a wonderkind, but he doesn't know what to do with it, and he's overwhelmed and feels a bit trapped. Literary treks. Deep Space Nine, among all the Star Trek series, is the one that really over time, and I'm talking about now on the television series, not just in the books, changed the most. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone... And, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Actually, we don't appreciate it at all. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. No, we really do appreciate it. I was just saying that because of, you know, the whole thing, but whatever. Yeah. Hey, you know what would be cool? If you left us a review on iTunes, uh, apparently that's a big deal. It helps other people find the show. 
It helps us get exposure and, and everything, and it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So go to iTunes, uh, find the show, subscribe, and uh, leave a review. And we'll read it on the air. It doesn't even have to be five stars. Uh, but it should be. <laughs> uh, other ways that you can contact us, you can go to the form on trek.fm slash contact, fill that out. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail like Ben did. Look at this. See, see, this is why you should be leaving us voicemails. Because yeah. if people leave us voicemails, then we find out a whole bunch of stuff that we never knew about Maurice Hurley. So leave us a voicemail, and then we'll find out even more about Maurice Hurley. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM, where you'll also find the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field or go to uh, um, our website at Trek.FM and click on the discussion tab on the menu bar. Uh, That's our forum where people can talk about uh, everything related to Star Trek, including Maurice Hurley. All right. Um, okay. John, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And you can also find me on a weekly podcast that I co-host with my buddy Craig called Words with Nerds, also available through iTunes and Stitcher and etc. And you can find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit, uh, which is all about the original series. And you can also find me on my website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we do Commentary Track Stars Off Topic and Commentary Track Star Babies. And you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can find all of us on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Use both of those avenues to tell Mike that he has to see Braveheart. Yes, and I will say okay and <laughs> not watch it uh, anytime soon. Not that I have anything against it. I just have other things that I need to see first, like Life Ooh. of Crime or Lady from Shanghai. Or Tombstone. That's not a movie that I need to see before Braveheart. Yes, it is. Maybe. All right, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. So, so John, uh, what I know last week, I think, I said that I was going to give my review of Dark Disciple, but I haven't finished it yet. I'm a slow reader, even when it comes to Audible. So, what do you have in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, Mike, uh, since we talked about uh, Maurice Hurley's time and how Q interacted with the Borg, available through Audible is Star Trek Spock versus Q, uh, actually written by Leonard Nimoy and narrated by Leonard Nimoy and John Delancey. Uh, and it is, uh, the synopsis is, Ambassador Spock travels back in time to subtly warn Earth's inhabitants of impending doom while calling into question humanity's priorities. However, before the truth is told, the all-powerful being Q appears and reminds Spock that he is prohibited from interfering in Earth's history. Besides, Q doesn't see mankind as something worth saving. Nimoy wrote it. Nimoy wrote it. That means it's canon, if you ask me. 
So I, I think if Nimoy wrote it and he's part of the cast with John Delancey. So far, this happened. Yeah. Period. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek stars, and the network. So that's it. That's it for Maurice Hurley. Uh, learned a whole lot. In this series, you know, it was one of those things where when we went into it, I was like, what are we going to talk about exactly? Because nobody knows anything. And we can say, well, season one kind of sucked and season two kind of sucked. And hey, but there's (laughs) Q-Who and oh, well, but he created the Borg. And now uh, through um, good luck and, 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 and helpful people, we know a ton about him. So thanks. Thanks to Ben, and thanks to Larry, and thanks to William Shatner for releasing Chaos on the Bridge. Um, and Groom Lake. Why not, right? It was a thing. All right. Uh, so that's it for Maurice Hurley. Uh, next week, we're going to uh, take a look at the work of James Horner and begin a new series on him. <laughs>